0: So today's, my little uh, discussion today will be entitled Kingdom of Priests. The uh, language there comes from 1 Peter 2, but in reference to Exodus 19.6, when God uh, called the people of Israel at Sinai a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And uh, Peter therefore also identifies the entire church as such. So we—that that is our title, that's who we are. That's very much descriptive of our function and our roles, not the only functions and roles, but a very good portion of it. So it's a popular Reformed doctrine, and um, I'm not going to probably deal with it in a Reformed fashion at all. So <laughs> we'll reference that for contrast's sake, but... Um, Just a little bit of history, um, Martin Luther and many of the reformers um, utilized, or that language came out of the Reformation to distinguish between what was called the uh, uh, clergy-laity distinction, I think, or um, basically if you were a priest or a member of the Catholic Church that was in charge of the sacraments and the service and so forth, you were part of the clergy. But the people, the laity, uh, were not that and there was actually quite a distinction of spiritual and non-spiritual upper class second class that went on within the church at that point and so the doctrine of kingdom of priests or the priesthood of all believers um, is such that encourages all believers universally to understand that they have priestly duties and roles before god they their jobs their families their Uh, Day-to-day activities are all spiritual and have great and tremendous import for the kingdom of God. You're not a second-class citizen in the kingdom. There is no such thing. So um, that's the kingdom of priests, priesthood of all believers, reformed doctrine. What we'll do is I'll just go ahead and start reading 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 4 through 10. We'll start there. And if you guys want to turn with me, feel free or break out those smartphones. In coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for this is contained in Scripture. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter, therefore, identifies the people of God, as the church, as the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, all specific identifiers of ethnic national Israel in the Old Testament. Those were identity points for them. And that is now open and available to us. And the reason I actually started to dive into this topic is... um, is a little bit less of a Bible study as much as it's kind of more of a digest of some of my studies and learnings. uh, Some of the things I've been studying from James Jordan specifically. Um, As you know, maybe, uh, there's a number of us who've really appreciated James Jordan's works recently, and um, it's become very edifying to engage with some of his materials. So I wanted to kind of bring out um, one of the concepts that he uh, enumerates. Um, Specifically, it comes out of Uh, From Bread to Wine, Chapter 2, that chapter deals very much with what I'm going to be trying to thrust at. So if you happen to, um, and I'm probably going to have to deal with this, uh, you'll probably hear me reference this pattern over and over and over again. And I just want to let you know where it comes from, where you can reference and kind of study about it. Also, the Theopolis uh, podcast is super helpful. The Life of Jacob series deals with this topic over and, over and over and over and over and over and over again. So it's very, very useful and helpful. It actually brought me a great amount of encouragement because it act, it's a process of maturation that God takes his people through, both individually and corporately. And it's a very solid biblical pattern. We can see it through the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, and that progression of maturation um, is such that it can literally be described as the ways that God deals with us. When we get a chance to encounter the ways of God, <laughs> when we understand how He deals with us, how He deals with us as individuals and the people, it's super helpful. Like it, you can start to appreciate what you're going through going along with the grain, even though it feels like you're going against the grain, maybe in suffering or trials, you can realize there is a a providential going with the grain that you can engage in. You can actually appreciate your trial. You can actually carry your cross. You can hug your cross. You can enjoy suffering, not to be masochistic or anything, but to simply appreciate what God is taking you through. Romans 8.28, for all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That includes trials and sufferings, (laughs) and many struggles, wrestlings, and so forth that you might encounter in your life. Therefore, to appreciate the process that God is taking you through in the midst of it, understanding his ways of dealing with you, can be very encouraging and helpful. (laughs) So Jordan gives a pretty interesting uh, progression. Um, Specifically, priest, king, prophet, going from least mature to a little bit more mature. And um, being able to treat all those effectively, it would take me longer. So I do kind of want to outline sketch, but then focus in on priests today. So we'll see if we can get anywhere with that. Um, the thinking is um, there are growth patterns of maturity uh, that we do see biblically that we engage in on a very common level. Um, specifically, when we come to Christ, we are recognized and we know ourselves as sons of God, right? Right? Well, those sons eventually grow into becoming the bride of Christ. Um, the bride is a picture of a more mature state and more intimate state with God, Jesus specifically, um, than the sons. The sons is a legal right through adoption. It is a positional um, understanding of who we are and our, um, author- the authority that we're endowed with by our father. The bride, however, has the ear of the king, has the heart of the king has a more intimate and personal connection with the king um, and therefore wields a little bit more influence in that sense um, over, over the affections and um, encounter with the king. So that's a very common progression of maturation that we engage with on a regular basis. We don't always hear that when we come to God, we are children of God, and those children are taught specific ways of dealing and acting um, and they become priests. Therefore, they have specific duties, specific actions that are very detailed, very enumerated in scripture. They're not open for interpretation. They're concrete, black and white type stuff, right? If you've ever studied any of the Levitical um, passages, um, they are black and white. You're going to take the animal, you're going to kill it, you're going to keep the blood in, the, in this basin, then you're going to sprinkle it on this corner, that corner, and this corner, and that corner, and then you're going to shower it this way and that way. And then you're going to take the innards and you're going to make sure you get the lobe the liver, the fat around the entrails. You know, You're going to be very specific in all these things. There's no open-ended conversation or discussion. It's super black and white. That's how you talk to a child. That's how you instruct a child. You say, or I might say to my son Samuel, Samuel, Go get me socks from my drawer. It's in the top drawer on the right side, behind the T-shirts. You know, like it's you're very specific about everything that you need him to accomplish or your child to accomplish. That's how God spoke and established the priestly order. Very basic, very black and white. Not a lot of thinking involved. And after practice, you become really good at it. You become it's rote memorization, muscle memory, and um, this is very much how the priests preserved knowledge, how they instructed the people. It was how the nation was ordered and functioning in worship before God according to a very set pattern. That's super important. The pattern is what's being taught and administered by the priest. The priest has to retain that pattern, has to become an expert at the pattern, and help the people to not miss steps either. The people will be like, You know, you could be coming up for a a sacrifice that day, be like, hey, uh, I got a 12 o'clock. Can we, like, hurry this along? (laughs) The priest has to say, no, 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 we've got to do it like this, that, and the other. You know, we can't skip steps here. This isn't a shortcut to the throne of God. We've got to truly, before God, have fear of the Lord. And they instruct the people on how to engage in worship. This is priestly duties. This is what we as priests are all called to. To know the ways of God, to know the worship of God, to know the order of his house, and to become, therefore, effective palace servants. Faithful in all of his house. That um, faithful in all of his house hearkens to a passage in Hebrews, which is where we'll find ourselves next. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. excuse me Therefore holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house for every house is built by someone but the builder of the, all things is God now moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later but christ was faithful as a son over the house over his house excuse me whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end It's important to recognize the association of Jesus Christ as the high priest and Moses as a servant and faithful and Christ as servant and faithful of the house. Even though Christ is his house, he's still a faithful son of the house, son master of the house, if you will, right? But he's the high priest thereof. So the the image is of, you know, the tabernacle or temple, the house of God. But we see architectural analogies. Um, If you read in Revelation, and I believe it's chapter 20 or 21, forgive me, it's the description of the New Jerusalem, and it talks about there's no temple in the New Jerusalem because the Lord our God and Christ his King are its temple, right? So the temple is is a temporary... Um, structure, type, and so forth. That's not the way the new covenant reality of the uh, new Jerusalem is. The temple's gone. It's a house. It's a city. It's a city set on a hill uh, that cannot be hid, so on and so forth. So you have to kind of think in terms of all the temple imagery of the Old Testament are shadows and types of an ultimate fulfillment of the house of God. The palace of the king, if you will, even. That's maybe a stretch, but it's very, it's an easy step, hopefully. Um, so Christ and Moses, being faithful in the house of God, they take on a, a type of palace servant role. Peter Lightheart's really good about enumerating that one. If you ever get a chance, type in Lightheart, palace servant, and you'll probably come up with something on Google. Um, but that's... Uh, That's a good image. So, I want to bring that out because that's this picture of a priest. A priest is a palace servant. He's faithful in the house. He um, operates according to the order and pattern of the house, and therefore is able to instruct the people and the nations accordingly and help them to rightly relate with the God of the universe in his house, to come near to the throne and not be offensive, to make sure if you show up to the wedding feast, you've got your garments on. The priests were very good at inspecting all sacrifices. They were, that was part of their duty. They had to sit there. If they got a, a lamb or a goat that was brought to them, they'd be like, mm, that one's got a blemish. You're going to have to change that out. That's not an acceptable sacrifice. It doesn't follow according to the pattern. Um, and we've got those services. We can help you figure this out because you know, we're interested in right worship around here. We're interested in orthodoxy. We want it to be correct to the glory of the king. Priests are concerned with these things. They know the pattern, they've studied the pattern, they are faithful in God's house. Um, that is what I would really like to drive home when we think of the doctrine that's in Reformed language, the priesthood of all believers, but we are a kingdom of priests. We have a king, we are ruled, we are ordered, we are subjects of the king, but we have duties as priests. Universally applied, to all Christians. All right, hopefully I beat that one into the ground. Um, Malachi two four talks about how the lips of the priests preserve knowledge and they they are uh, able to teach. Um, and I'll throw some of these out. Ezra uh, is famous in Ezra of how he instructed the people and read the law. Once the uh, I think it was one it was at the t- dedication of the temple. Um, how he gave the sense of the law to the people. He not only just read it out loud. He helped them understand and engage with the concepts that were. Somewhat removed from that new generation just out of exile. They didn't necessarily have a, a first hand knowledge of the way the temple used to run, so they had to kind of come up on that, and Ezra was willing or was able to teach as a priest um, and give the sense. So I guess I've also said this already, but they followed the letter of the law, they followed the letter of the rule of the house, they followed the pattern following the letter, they also represent the people in life and death, in a sense. Um, What do I mean by that? We know that Christ is called the Lamb of God, right? What that means is, is that the Lamb of the Old Testament was a representative and a type of who Christ really is eternally. Universally, forever and ever, he will be the Lamb of God. But all those lambs that were sacrificed at the uh, um, uh, Day of Atonement, um, during Passover and so forth, all of those lambs were pointing to Christ. Animals represent people, is the principle here, right? In the Old Testament, in the sacrificial Levitical system, animals represent people. So when we see uh, God talking about uh, David as a shepherd of my people Israel, right? He's a a leader. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. All of those are types pointing to Christ, but even more so, you see all of the patriarchs in Genesis being shepherds. They were always gathering and ordering and keeping flocks. That is a representation of the nation that is to come, that is governed and ordered by priests eventually kings and prophets in God's house, flocks are a representative um, portion. Priests had to deal with flocks, had to deal with the animals, they had to deal with sacrifices and how to handle all of that. We have to be able to handle, therefore, eventually, as we grow more and more with people, because animals are representative of people. There's a, there is a parallel, there is an immediate parallel, Uh, I don't want to say contrast, whatever, carryover, I guess. There's an immediate carryover between these two. So you could sit there and read the Old Testament a dozen times and ponder those images and how they can play out and apply. I won't probably be able to dive any deeper into that in more detail. um, For one, because I didn't prepare it, and two, because I'm probably not going to have time. But just keep that in mind as you're reading the Old Testament. Animals are representative of people. So the way that the flocks are dealt with, the way that the um, sheep are dealt with, the way that... um, Are indicative of how the people are thought of and dealt with. Very important. Um, That can get you a lot more out of your Old Testament right there. So, back to this pattern of growth and maturity. I don't know if I quite drove it home. So, that's priests, that's who we are, and that's part of our coming out of immaturity and into maturity. Each of these stages priest, king, prophet are progressions in maturity. Okay? Priestly duties are simple, but precise, black and white. Kingly duties require wisdom. They require nuance. They require potentially picking the lesser of two evils and having to make the call that affect many people. Ruling and ordering your people according to not a prescribed fashion in the law. Think of a general in charge of troops. He knows that if he goes over the ridge, he's going to lose 60% of his his guys, but if he goes around the mountain and tries to flank him, he's going to potentially only lose 30% of his people. Either way, he loses. Which one do you pick and how do you make that call? That's the duty of a king. That's the wisdom that's required, that is not prescribed in the law, that's not prescribed in the how-to manual of how to be a king, because there is none. There is none. You have to learn to apply the principles and the heart of the law to every nuanced situation. That requires wisdom. So in Israel's progression, if we will, we see these priestly duties. Uh, The priesthood specifically ran. uh, There are instances all the way through Genesis and so forth. But uh, starting with Moses, going to the time of Saul, the priests were more or less the heads of the nation okay? They functioned as the judges, they functioned as the um, worshipers, or the worship leaders, and um, arbitrators of justice and so forth, from Moses to Saul. What we get, therefore, is um, they represent the people in all these aspects before God. However, from the time of Saul to the end of the Israelite kingdom, the, the Babylonian captivity, Um we have the kingly period of their maturation. In like fashion, their prophetic period was from Elijah all the way to Christ. The prophets were the ones that spoke um, and ruled in the midst of the people when there was no king, in the absence of a king. Now, obviously, Elijah, there was a king. Um, There were many kings um, after Elijah, but the period was coming to a close and prophets also participate in the transition of those periods. We will not dive into that. I'll deal with that another time. I love that thought, though. but we'll, we'll deal with that another time. Rough sketch again. Moses to Saul, priestly time period. Saul to kingdom end um, is the kingly period, and Elijah to Jesus is the prophetic period. So we see a progression in the actual history of Israel, which covers the whole breadth of the Old Testament, that actually are patterns of the national maturation of the people of God. We, therefore, can be instructed accordingly. We can understand the ways that God deals with his people in time and find ourselves relating, hopefully, more effectively and more expectantly of the high call that he actually is... uh, put before us. He's not called us to just remain as priests. He's not called us to just receive stewardship and uh, operate in wisdom in our homes and in our jobs and in positions of authority. He's actually called us to become prophetic. And what does that mean? Uh, for the sake of understanding that, let's, let's think about that one for a second. Um, it means to become a member of the divine council. Amos 3.5. What does it mean to be prophetic, biblically speaking? It's not just tell the future. Okay? And the only way that they were able to tell the future is because they were a member of the council. <laughs> it's actually really important because they were part of the decision making process in the councils of God. Amos 3 5, or 3 7, excuse me, 3 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Skipping over to chapter 7, verse 1 through 6, we see a little bit of that kind of application and discussion. Uh, Verses, what is this, 1 through 6, I guess. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. God exposed his plans to Amos. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing, and it came about when it had finished eating the vegetational land that I said, Lord God, please pardon, how can Jacob stand, for he is small? Verse 3, the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep, and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand, for he is small? The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. You can also hearken back, that should hope, that kind of a conversation, it's a type of intercession. It's a type of... um, bargaining, if you will, with God. There are, you don't, bargaining with God is not super encouraged, but having a discussion and a relationship out of intimacy with your king, with the one who has welcomed you into his presence, is permissible. Think of uh, Abraham and uh, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot was stationed. God said, I'm going to destroy it. Abraham's like, oh God, far be it from you. What if there are a hundred? Would you destroy it? And he said, no, for the sake of 100, I won't. He said, oh God, far be it for me to even speak to you, but what about 50? (laughs) What about 10? (laughs) He works his, he bargains in a sense, but he works his way down by, what's the right way to put this, by reminding God of his justice by speaking about the attributes of God in his mercy. Abraham knew God intimately enough to understand his mercy and his covenant faithfulness, and Abraham was also standing in the place of Lot and trying to intercede on behalf of Lot and his household, and so forth. This is a type of Christ as our high priest mediator of a new covenant. This is also a type of our priestly duties before God to minister before him, but brought into his secret counsels, his counsels that are determined to act in this way. And through prayer and intercession, we are able to engage with him according to his word, according to his promises, appealing to his nature, knowing his covenant faithfulness and mercies. We are able to indeed influence the passings and events of time in history. That's a mature place to find yourself. And... We have to have these images and types and expectations of what Christian maturity looks like in our mind so that we more readily, I find it very encouraging, I find myself more willing to endure and press in harder when I know what God actually has called me to be. When he called me son, he didn't mean for me to stay a child. He didn't mean for me to just keep getting spanked all the time. He actually really wanted me to grow up and know his heart, know his mind, participate in what he's doing in history. That's the call of church. That's the call of the people of God. These are progressions of maturity. Each one of these progressions stewards a little bit more judgment, stewards a little bit more intercession, intercessional um, currency, shall we say. You got a little bit more... um, Uh, Bang in the account when you're talking to God as you grow in the Lord, in the knowledge of Him, in the uh, experience of Him, and as you've also been put to death. Over and over and over again, when you're put to death, you're raised to new life. The hope we have in Christ is that nothing can separate us from God uh, in Christ Jesus, not even death itself. So anytime we would suffer a death in our life, I'm pursuing this career. I'm pursuing this um, very godly venture. I know that's the will of God, and then I have to put it on the altar and it burns up. What comes out on the other side of the altar, and I've said these things many times before up here, so hopefully it's weaving in a little bit better. What comes out on the other side of the fire of the altar is the refined um, product, it's the resurrection product, it's the new life of the kingdom. That's how we progress from glory to glory, from this degree of maturity and light and grace to the next. We go through trials, sufferings, fires, and pain, literally. But God, in his process, dealing with us, delivering us pain, crushings, weaknesses, uh, sleepless nights, um, struggles, sickness, whatever, persecution, hatred, revilement, uh, strife and relationships, whatever. The way God deals with us is delivering us these things because he's taking us to a more mature place. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And you are not called to remain a baby Christian. You are not called to just even remain a priest. You are called to be given authority and stewardship and access to the divine council so to speak and influence therefore for the nations to determine and participate in the passing of time in the in the increase of the government and peace of god in the earth as he continues to glorify and illuminate us and the peoples of this nation of the nations We get to participate in that progressive illumination and that reordering, reconstruction, recreation, and (laughs) pattern-imputing redemption. That pattern-imputing redemption. We participate in it. That's pretty cool. That's what we're all called to. That's what we actually are after here at this church. And we encourage all Christians to find themselves with these expectations of victory, with these expectations of maturity, with the studies that are necessary to know God and experience him in deeper ways, to be more intimately acquainted with his word, to have our relationships patterned and ordered according to the heavenly pattern, according to the uh, plural unity of the Trinity that's expressed in marriage, expressed in family life, um, expressed in Corporate worship. This is cool stuff. This is what we're about. It's glorifying to God. It's super helpful, though, to catch a glimpse of the picture, catch a glimpse of the pattern, catch a glimpse of the goals that God has for us that we may more appropriately engage in that progression. Anyway, so that's... um, profit would be kind of a high point. Let's see, do I want to beat this anymore? Um, let me see. the. Uh, I'm sorry, I have a couple other scriptures that are written down. Let me see if it helps us in any way really fast. I'm sorry. Again, I was less prepared for this one than I normally am, and I apologize. I have a couple verses in Revelation. Sometimes that gives good, big perspective. Revelation 5, verses 9 through 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. I guess Isaiah 61, 6. Let's look at that one really fast. Because who doesn't love Isaiah 61? But you were called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. I'd name it and claim it if I were you. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Sorry? Oh, yeah. We will uh, probably return to this progression. We'll probably return to this progression in the future. Um, I'm going to try to dive into it a little bit more. I like the idea, and I want to see it. I want to express it to you all biblically and show you in Scripture how the people of God specifically... The prophetic order, but also um, kings and so forth, are um, participating in the. Tra- they participate in Scripture in the transitions from the different ages and different times. If we could start to see that, then we would be a lot more encouraged to engage in prayer and intercession every time we have an election, every time that we study through history uh, in the Church Age, that is, in the last two thousand years, and see the fall of the Holy Roman Empire or fall of the Roman Empire. We see the uh, times and epochs that can occur in every century, but also then every 500-year block or so. We see these great moves and transitions that occur in history. If we understood how that happens biblically, we could therefore have a rubric in which to interpret history a little bit more effectively and find ourselves in the midst of that, of course, and be more aware and be more mindful of our role thereof. But I find this very encouraging. Maybe it's tall order. Maybe it feels weighty. Maybe you feel like, well, I'm not worthy of that. I'm no good for that. That's not what I hope you're coming to. I hope you come to that God has bigger plans for you than you ever thought or hoped. I hope you come to that God is so serious about you that he has not called you to something micro. He's called you to literally be a member of his family, of his secret councils, of his church. That is a high calling to be a part of the church of God in Christ Jesus. We have that privilege together, which is really exciting. May we order and pattern our lives accordingly. Lord, um, as usual, I'm super early and I have nothing else to say. So, (laughs) um, help us get a picture. Help us see clearly what you're driving at and help us to submit ourselves to wise teachers that uh, illuminate the scriptures and show us your patterns and your way that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Help us to hear what your teachers, your gifts to the church are saying in these ways and um, may we wrestle through them. May we find them in your word. Let us have noble hearts and minds as the Bereans of Acts did and to go to the scriptures and see it. Go to the scriptures and test it. And um, may this, these type of thoughts spark a lot of discussion and um, widen our vision and our gaze to what you have for us. And as we engage in worship today, may we think very high and wonderful lofty thoughts of you. In Jesus' name, amen.